1: Welcome to Workers' Comp Matters here on the Legal Talk Network. This is attorney Alan Pierce. I'm with the law firm of Pierce, Pierce, and Napolitano in Salem, Massachusetts, where we represent injured workers in disputed and uh, workers' compensation claims. I'm here today with attorney Martin Buzz Schneider from the law offices of Martin Schneider, PC. Buzz practices workers' comp law also in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, and his firm represents primarily insurers and self-insurers and companies in the defense of workers' compensation claims. On today's show, we're going to discuss an area that we haven't discussed on workers' comp matters before, and that is the liability of an employer for misconduct that rises beyond simple negligence or carelessness, but a type of intentional misconduct or serious and willful misconduct that might expose that employer to additional financial liabilities other than the mere payment of workers' compensation benefits by its insurer in cases where um, there is that degree of culpability or negligence. Before we begin, I'd like to thank our sponsors, Case Pacer Practice Management Software, dedicated to the busy trial attorney. To learn more, go to casepacer.com. And also to PI Now, find a local qualified private investigator anywhere in the United States, visit PI.com. Buzz, welcome to Workers' Comp Matters. Well, thanks for having me, Alan. Right. Well, let's kind of start at the beginning and um, set the scene for us. Workers' compensation has been part of the legal landscape for pretty much a 100 or more years throughout Massachusetts and the rest of the country as part of the requirement to obtain workers' compensation benefits and to provide workers' compensation coverage, the employer gets something in return. Could you describe what that sort of bargain is, the so-called quid pro quo between workers' comp?
2: Yes. Well, in Massachusetts, in many states, the uh, employers uh, have signed on to a statutory scheme of benefits for employees that are injured in the course and scope of their employment. No negligence is required to, uh, to be eligible for workers' compensation, as we all know. And uh, in exchange, the employer has the exclusive remedy, that is the uh, injured workers are unable to sue in tort uh, directly, in, in most cases, um, an employer for on-the-job uh, injuries. There are exceptions, but that is really the general scheme of workers' compensation.
1: And if we were to really approach this topic on a, a more broad level, we could be talking about exceptions to the exclusive remedy uh, provisions of the workers' comp. And in a sense, we are going to talk about it a little more narrowly this, in this edition, and that is the particular liability for an employer for a degree of misconduct that is just more than simple negligence or carelessness. Uh, every state, every jurisdiction that has a type of workers' comp law probably have provisions similar to, but in other ways different than what we have in Massachusetts. However, in Massachusetts, we have what's known as Section 28 of our workers' comp statute. Our statute is Chapter 152 of the general laws, and Section 28 is currently commonly referred to as the double compensation section. So let's visit that and kind of explain what it is, because it is similar and parallel to many other states. Well, Alan, I think it's uh, it's probably helpful to go back to the beginning.
2: Our statute was uh, enacted in 1911, and I think within a year uh, the legislature recognized that uh, an injured worker is going to give up their common uh, their common law uh, tort uh, rights against the employer in, in this type of relationship. So there's no um, civil action, if you will, for pain and suffering if an employer acts negligently causing an injury. So in recognition of that and the fact that injuries can be caused by the willful and wanton reckless conduct of an employer, our legislature here in Massachusetts enacted Section 28, which indicates that if an employer acts with serious and willful misconduct, either the employer or somebody regularly entrusted with the power of superintendence over an injured worker that compensation would be doubled, that is, weekly indemnity benefits and medical benefits would be doubled, and that doubling benefit would be paid directly by the employer uh, to the insurer. In other words, the insurer would
1: subrogate to the employer for that uh, doubling factor of Section 28. Okay, so let let me see if I can get this straight. My client is injured under circumstances, and we'll talk about what those circumstances are with some case examples in a minute but circumstances by which it is found that the employer engaged in the degree of serious and willful misconduct. So the injured worker has been getting $700 a week in weekly workers compensation benefits, and the insurance company has paid $22,000 in medical benefits. And the injured worker is still collecting $700 each and every week because it's a serious long-term disability. A finding is made of double compensation. Who pays my client? What does that company pay my client, and then how does that company get compensated?
2: Well, in, in Massachusetts, um, by statute and by a case decision, the um, doubling benefit, if you will, will be paid first by the insurer. The insurer is the primary payer under our statute of the Section 28 benefit. We have subrogation language in our Section 28 um, statute that allows the insurer to subrogate and collect that Section 28 benefit directly from the employer. And that was the original drafters of that section, and we know from recent case law in the uh, Soliski's case, that was done to protect an injured worker from an employer that either becomes bankrupt, defunct, runs away after a Section 28 verdict, and an employee is left with the inability to collect the doubling benefits. So the primary payer in our state is the insurer who has to subrogate against the employer for the return of the money
1: okay so if the employer is no longer either financially viable or even around, the insurer gets stuck paying for the employer's financial obligation That's correct and in in Massachusetts in in CNA versus
2: Soliski's case, I believe it was that, th- is- that that actually took place where the insurer attempted to argue that because of the penalty feel if you will of a section 28, uh, decision or final finding that uh, if the employer is no longer available to pay pay that back, that the punitive nature of Section 28 really is gone and the insurer should be alleviated from paying the benefit. Um, and our Supreme Judicial Court said no, that the primary payer by statute is the insurer regardless of whether the employer
1: is still in existence. So in my example, after a Section 28 award, the $22,000 in medical benefits that have been paid to doctors and hospitals, the insurer would cut a check for that exact amount payable to my client?
2: That's correct.
1: And all of the weekly checks of $700 a week for whatever number of months or years would be totaled up, and he would get a check for that retroactive amount? For that retroactive amount and for ongoing benefits as well, so uh, the seven hundred would turn into fourteen hundred dollars a week. That's okay. correct. Now, we both know from our experience that the key language and the language that fosters the most litigation and causes the most controversy is the language of serious and willful misconduct. Let's let's break that down. Um, I think we all know what misconduct is, and serious is is also pretty commonly understood. I think the the real word of those three serious willful misconduct is willful. How give us an example of the type of case that would fit that category?
2: Historically, in Massachusetts, the case that many of us um, look to is Armstrong's case, and it's a, it's a really a wonderful example of Section twenty eight. And in Armstrong's case, there were workers surrounding a building, and there was construction on the upper floors of the building. And the employees uh, warned their supervisor, somebody in, with the power of superintendence over them, that because of the failure to place uh, structural nets around the construction, that the workers were exposed to a significant hazard or risk of injury. And in Armstrong's case, the workers were told either you go back to work or you, you can quit for the day and you won't be working here any, any longer. And unfortunately, we know what happened next. There was an accident where a tool fell off one of the upper floors of the building, striking and seriously injuring a a worker on the floors below. So we have actual knowledge of a dangerous condition with a strong likelihood that serious harm or death would result, and you have an employer basically turning a blind eye and actually admonishing the uh, employees for speaking up. That's a, a very a good example of what we're dealing here with
1: Section 28. Yeah, I think other uh, courts have described the term as willful and wanton misconduct, or conduct that is quasi-criminal in nature, which, which gives rise to situations where the employer may have actually violated the law. Uh, the most common law that deals with worker safety is the OSHA regulations and safety rules. What is the effect of OSHA coming in after a serious injury, finding there were deficiencies in the safety protocols employed by the employer, give citations to the employer for serious misconduct that caused the injury? Is that conclusive evidence of serious willful misconduct that would support a double compensation claim? Well, in in Massachusetts,
2: an OSHA violation uh, is some evidence of um, serious and willful misconduct, but it is certainly not issue determinative if we're dealing with the accident uh, that, that was being investigated. Certainly, if there's an OSHA investigation and a violation in um, Accident 1 and subsequently the same type of injury occurs at some point later uh, after that first injury, that's really the most dramatic um, example of a section 28 case where OSHA has identified a serious condition
1: and it's not corrected And there could be other violations of law. I know Buzz you handled and defended uh, a very interesting tragic and in many ways sad case involving uh, a young man somebody uh, what 14, 15 years old uh, that was the country Club case and the golf uh, the golf cart and uh, give us a little idea of how the facts of that case as they related to Section 28 and violation of law, was important. Well, in that case, Alan, that you're referring
2: to, um, involved the uh, child labor laws. And in Massachusetts, the violation of a child labor law is really prima facie um, evidence of uh, violation of Section 28. And in the case that you're referring to, a young man, unfortunately, uh, did not have his driver's license. I believe he was 15 and a half years old, was operating a golf cart and uh, drove the golf cart to a building location where there was an incline, and it appeared that the cart was in forward mode instead of reverse, and he struck the building and was fatally injured. And the case really centered around whether or not a minor could operate a golf cart on a private way and whether that was a violation of the child labor laws. So there were many layers to that case, but um, clearly, it sends a signal to employers in Massachusetts, and I'm sure similar jurisdictions have have statutory provisions protecting underage workers. And that's really you have a strict liability standard within Section 28.
1: And I think one of the issues, if I remember correctly, is whether or not uh, the child he was allowed to work. Uh, he had the, presumably had the proper permits to work at age 15. Uh, the child labor laws, I think, spoke about the operation of a motor vehicle, and the question is whether the golf cart qualified as a motor vehicle as defined in the statutes. And that, that issue made its way up through the appellate courts, did it not?
2: It did. And in, in Massachusetts, uh, one of the child labor law subparts indicates that a uh, minor cannot operate a motor vehicle of any kind and that was a central issue in in our litigation uh, at the appellate level, and it was determined that uh, a golf cart was a motor vehicle of any kind, even though it was used on private property. And that was really a break from past uh, decisions from our appeals court and SJC that indicated that an ATV vehicle or a snowmobile were not motor vehicles uh, in, in in insurance cases. So. Um, they tied the minor using a golf cart and said that the uh, motor vehicle provision would cover that, and that would really be a strict liability, Section 28 violation.
1: I think this is a good time to take a break. We will be right back after uh, a few words uh, with Attorney Martin Schneider, and we'll finish our conversation regarding double compensation benefits for serious misconduct.
0: CasePacer is the leading practice management software for today's Workers Comp and Plaintiff's Attorney. Named one of the fastest growing companies in America by Inc. magazine, we've given attorneys and their staff the ability to work from anywhere on any device. By automating workflows and streamlining non-revenue generating tasks, CasePacer enables firms to grow their practice at minimal cost. To see CasePacer in action, contact us today at CasePacer.com. including workers' compensation and surveillance. Find a pre-screened private investigator today. Visit www.pinow.com. Welcome back to
1: Workers' Comp Matters. This is Alan Pierce. I'm here with Martin Schneider. We're talking about double compensation, serious willful misconduct cases, and Buzz and his firm of attorneys, Uh, have been very adept at defending these claims, and these are oftentimes very difficult claims to defend. I can tell you from the perspective of the injured worker's attorney, they are also difficult because we have a very high burden of proof. We have a very high standard of negligence that we have to prove basically intentional misconduct by an employer. Buzz was involved in another recent case that I think illustrates um, the difficulties and issues in these type of cases. Why don't you fill us in on that, Buzz? Well, I think at the beginning
2: of our conversation, we were uh, discussing what types of cases reach the level of serious and willful misconduct, and and I'm asked that question quite often, and it's really the oh my god test that we've all heard in law school, something that really shocks your conscience. And uh, an example that I always recall is uh, does involve an OSHA investigation, um, it involved a manufacturing plant. Um, And this plant conducted uh, spray booth activities. They were spraying parts and uh, doing this on a regular basis with seven or eight workers. And unfortunately, this manufacturer did not provide um, grounded uh, uh, static electricity, grounded clothing or boots for their workers. And unfortunately, a, a spark of static electricity ignited in the spray booth and somebody was seriously burnt. Um, an OSHA investiga- investigation ensued, and it was uh, quite a significant fine to the employer for multiple violations involving the spray booth. Fast forward a year later, and the, the violations required the employer to buy static preventable buckets to pour the paint, clothing to prevent static electricity sparks to the workers, um, which were all purchased and used for about a month or two, and then um, the employer Uh, determined that it slowed the work process down to use the static electricity buckets and the employer clothing was not uh, distributed. And unfortunately, a year later, there was a similar static electricity spark fire and somebody was seriously injured. And that's really a case that illustrates what Section 28, Willful Wanton Reckless Conduct, is with actual knowledge of an employer of a dangerous condition and and really um, could support, and many of the early cases indicate that would support a criminal conviction for manslaughter
1: if somebody died. And we all know that we are in business, unfortunately, because accidents happen. And uh, if, if employers and insurers want to control and limit their expense, exposure, and cost, the f- easy way isn't to wait until the accident happens. The the best way for everybody involved is to prevent that accident from happening. And unfortunately, accidents do happen, always will happen. They'll happen as a result of our our client's own negligence, no negligence, fellow workers' negligence or carelessness, as well as the employer. Buzz, I want to thank you for sharing your views regarding these types of serious and willful misconduct cases. Um, I think this will lead into another discussion on other aspects of exception to the exclusive remedy rule. Um, So on behalf of Workers' Comp Matters and Legal Talk Network, this is Alan Pierce saying thank you. Listen again and go out and make it a day that matters.
2: Thanks for listening
0: to Workers' Comp Matters today on the Legal Talk Network, hosted by attorney Alan S. Pierce, where we try to make a difference in workers' comp legal cases For people injured at work, be sure to listen to other Workers' Comp Matters shows on the Legal Talk Network, your only choice for legal talk.
2: The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song.